Good morning, Resurrection Church. My name is Nathan Mayer. I'm one of the elders here at Res, and it's my privilege to open the word with you today. We're going to be continuing in our series in John chapter 1 as we consider the miracle, the, the glory of God, the living God coming to earth, wrapping himself in flesh and becoming one of us. We're going to be focusing on uh, a little guy named uh, Johnny B., John the Baptist, the, the Raptist Baptist, the, the coolest cat to ever herald the coming of the Messiah, because he's the only one. And uh, so I talk like that because this isn't the first time I've preached on John the Baptist. I actually taught about John the Baptist in youth one Wednesday night. And as hard as y'all can be to, to keep engaged, because, you know, lunchtime gets close and all that stuff, Youth are infinitely harder to keep engaged. Like, and even when you're doing a good job, the best you get is like positive comments after the service because during the service, it's just like blank slate, deadpan, no expression. Like, are they conscious? Are they alive? Like, breathe, breathe. Is there something going on in there? And, uh, so you have to ham it up a little bit more in order to uh, kind of help them feel comfortable. And usually that means making yourself look ridiculous. So um, I wrote a rap about John the Baptist to, to, uh, to no, <laughs> I, I will explain. Like, if you looked at my Spotify wrapped, it's like 50% hip hop. Like I, I'm an, an admirer, appreciator of hip hop, but it's sort of like how most, most of us are admirers of uh, NBA players. And then, you know, you try to get out there. It takes you like 20 tries just to make it in the basket. That's, that's, that's how that rap went. It was, the, it was horrible, just absolutely the worst. Um, but it was funny, and uh, it, it got the message across that John the Baptist, he's actually a really important figure. John the Baptist needs a hype man because he is a really important character in the redemptive plan of Jesus you could even say, and we'll cover this later, that John the Baptist saved Christmas. So the next time somebody asks you what the point of John the Baptist was, you can say, he saved Christmas, and we'll find out why. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we don't really understand John. He's kind of just the weird guy who eats bugs and wears camel hair, right? And uh, so we miss out on his critical role in the redemptive plan of Jesus. But the Gospels, they don't downplay John. They spend a lot of time actually talking about the role of John, the origin story of John the Baptist, Luke, in the first three chapters, he gives us the longest Christmas story of anybody. And about 50% of those three chapters isn't actually about Jesus's birth. It's about John the Baptist's birth and the prophecies concerning him. So the gospel writers obviously consider John an important figure. If we look at Luke's story of the origin of John the Baptist, how John the Baptist became the Raptist Baptist, you... Uh, you see a couple. There's this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're old, they're advanced in years. They're righteous people who are looking for the coming of the Messiah. They're people of prayer who are seeking God. 
and they are old, but they haven't had any children, which at the time was like one of the worst. There, there's all kinds of poverty, right? We focus way too much on money, but we can have a poverty of relationships, a poverty of uh, status, poverty of wealth. There's all kinds of ways that we can be missing the shalom, the, the peace that God intended, the perfection that God desires for us. Um, and they were missing the gift of children. And that was a burden for them. But as Zechariah goes to the temple, probably for the only time in his life to offer incense in the holy place as an honor for his family and for his village, he hears a voice. A voice from heaven speaks to him and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So if you recall the story, Zechariah, he hears these words, but he doesn't believe them. And so as a sign that these things would come true, the angel actually strikes Zechariah mute, dumb. He's not able to speak until the baby's born. Um, there were probably nicer signs that <laughs> he could have uh, given Zechariah for the promise that he was going to have fulfilled, but it's also sort of a chastisement. Some discipline worked in there at the same time. And um, when the baby's born, the, everyone's asking, like, what's this kid going to be? Who's this man going to turn out to become? Because the people were waiting for a Messiah. They didn't know what kind of Messiah they were waiting for, but they were waiting for a Messiah. The oppression of Rome weighed heavy on these people. The desire for their own nation, for their own kingdom, for their own king weighed heavy on them. It was, it was a burden, a, a hunger. And so they're awaiting for the promised son of David, the king, the anointed one, who is going to deliver them from their trials, from their burdens. So um, the significance of John the Baptist in the storyline is actually, John the Baptist, he's an old school prophet, an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. And so you think, well, why does he have to dress so weird and do such strange things? Why does he have to be out in the desert? Like, if you think John the Baptist is weird, go look at the Old Testament prophets and you will get, you'll, you'll realize that John the Baptist is mild compared to some of the other uh, lifestyles that the prophets lived. Some of the prophets, uh, one of the prophets, I believe it was Isaiah, laid on his left side for two years as a judgment on the people of Israel. Like, can you imagine the backache when you got up from having laid on your side for two years straight? Uh, maybe it was also Isaiah who went around naked for a year as a judgment on the people of Israel. You might think that we get a little too crazy here sometimes, but Pastor Daniel has never tried to preach naked. So we can all be grateful that we're, we're much more uh, uh, steady than the prophets of God were. Um, I'm personally very grateful for that. <laughs> um, John, he was an Old Testament prophet who, if you think about 
the story that God's written as sort of a relay race. John the Baptist is like the last representative of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, passing the baton off to Jesus's new covenant, to Jesus's new role as the king who was to come. And so for the people of Israel, he was extremely important because we like to think that there were a lot of people who were just really excited about Jesus coming. But if you think about it, their kings, they were corrupt. The religious elite, they would tithe mint and dill and cumin, but they forgot justice. They forgot mercy. They forgot how to walk humbly with their God. It had been 400 years since God last spoke through his prophets to the people of Israel. And Despite the fact that they were looking for a Messiah, they weren't looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for a king, not a servant. They were looking for a conqueror and not a sacrificial lamb. And so the people weren't ready to receive Jesus. John the Baptist, he comes in the role of Elijah in Malachi chapter four. It actually tells us the significance of that. Malachi four, five through six says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So uh, Jesus's birth was good news, right? Uh, Good news of great joy, which will be for all people. But Without John the Baptist, it wouldn't have been good news because if Jesus came and found a people who wholesale rejected him, who wanted nothing to do with a sacrificial servant, who wanted nothing to do with a lamb, then it wouldn't have been good news. It would have been time for judgment. See, if the light of the world comes and everyone rejects him, nobody receives him, nothing comes of it, then the only thing left for this story is to end it. The only thing left for this story is judgment. And so God actually sovereignly used the ministry of John the Baptist to prepare a people for Jesus's birth. Because to be honest, you and I, we're not looking for a humble Messiah either. We're not looking for a lowly king either. We all love the guy like King Saul, who's tall and strong and buff and smart and charismatic, but we don't look for the, the humble servant, the lowly leader. And so John the Baptist came to prepare people like you and me to receive Jesus. That's his significance. That's why the gospel spends so much time on John. And uh, so what, what was John's actual role? What was his function? Well, our passage, it tells us, it says he came as a witness. He came as a witness. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John, he came baptizing people in the Jordan River, but his baptism, it wasn't like Jesus's baptism because he would baptize people calling them to repentance. But John, he didn't really have a new life to offer these people. He would call them to repent of their dead works and called them back to faithfulness to the old covenant. But every time he told them, another is coming after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He will come baptizing you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this one who is coming, he's the light. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you should be focusing on. So John, he came baptizing as a witness to point people to Jesus Christ. So 
what did, what did the people have to repent of? What did they have to, um, have to let go of to be ready to receive Jesus? Well, just like our corruption today in mainstream religion and in comfortable church, the people were guilty of greed, keeping back for themselves what should have been shared with others. Injustice, perverting the law to benefit them, uh, even foregoing taking care of their parents in their old age so that they could build their own little kingdoms of righteousness and legal uh, satisfaction of the law. The people were prideful and dishonest and hypocrites, really. People who called on the name of the Lord but didn't really want him to show up. People who claimed the name of Yahweh but didn't want him to actually intervene in their story because they were comfortable and they were in charge and they were powerful. John, he came to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Jesus, not in purity, not in holiness, not in cleanliness, but in repentance, to receive Jesus in repentance and humility, to prepare the posture of their hearts for Jesus. And if you remember John's story, it's not really a happy story, right? Like, You'd think that once Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist's story would get a lot easier. He starts out as an ascetic, living in the desert, uh, really suffering a lot and sacrificing a lot, wearing uh, poor clothes, eating very poor food, unless you really like locusts, which, you know, more power to you. But uh, eating poor food and living a life that was largely separate from the comforts of society. And you would think that once Jesus came on the scene, things might get better, things might get easier. But when John baptized Jesus Christ and placed the Son of God into the water and raised him up again, and the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove, anointing him as the Son of God, that was actually the beginning of the end for John the Baptist. That was the beginning of the end of John the Baptist's story of his ministry. And uh, so as Jesus's ministry grows, John the Baptist's ministry actually decreases. And it gets to the point where John's disciples say to him, teacher, don't you see that, they're, that everyone who follows you is going after Jesus? And he, he says something really beautiful. Instead of being concerned about that, he says, it is right that they do this because he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. See, John, John knew he wasn't here to build his own kingdom. He wasn't here to point people to himself. He had nothing to offer them, no life, no power. But he knew the one who could offer them life. He knew the one who was the light. He knew the one who was the power of God revealed on earth. And so when his followers left him and all the people were going to Jesus instead, he said, let him increase, let him grow. Even if it means I become less, even if it means people forget I'm even around, let them come to Jesus because he's the one who's going to baptize them with Holy Spirit and fire. So you and I, we can learn a lot from the example of John the Baptist John, he was content to even allow his ministry to decrease to the point of death. He didn't go on to live like a comfortable retirement. Oh, I guess my profiting days are over. I'm going to go retire to my 
Riverside estate on the Jordan and, uh, you know, take off the camel's hair and put on some nicer clothes and maybe eat something other than bugs for a change. He continued his prophetic ministry until finally he was put to death by King Herod for calling him out on his adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. And so even unto death, John allowed himself to decrease. You and I, we're, we're called to be witnesses as well. See, your life, it was never actually meant to be about you. The purpose of your life, even from the garden, was never supposed to be your story, your kingdom, your ambition, your plans. Our lives were always meant to be the, the outpouring, the, the flowing out of the life of God in us. See, John, he was the greatest among women, uh, among those born of women. Hopefully John wasn't among women, but uh, <laughs> the greatest of those born among women because he had a prophetic ministry unlike anyone else in the Old Testament. He got to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. John, he lived a life of sacrifice. He, he gave up things that you and I would never even dream of or aspire to. Like nobody wants God to call them to the hard ministry, right? Uh, if, we were, if we were all missionaries, you'd be like, can I go to the south of France? Or, or maybe you can call me to live out the rest of my life in Ireland and I can you know, preach the gospel in Ireland. Nobody wants to go to like South Sudan or Somalia or something like that where life is hard and difficult. But John, he sacrificed. He lived a lifestyle of sacrifice. He, he came as an ascetic so much so that people accused him of having a demon because of how rugged his lifestyle was. But John wanted his own ministry to decrease and Jesus's ministry to increase. Our calling, it's much the same. I'm not the main character in my story. You're not the main character in your story. We're witnesses. We're servants. We're called to point people, not to ourselves or to anything I can offer. Like no leadership book, no self-help book is ever going to give you the answers that you need. No amount of your excellence in your job or in your ministries or in your um, uh, music or whatever other expression, passion that you pursue is ever going to actually give people life. John came to point people to Jesus because Jesus is the one who gives us life. Jesus is the one who is the light of the world. Most of the growth that I've done in my life has been an expression of allowing myself to decrease so that Jesus can increase in my life. I, I was an ambitious guy. And so after I became a Christian, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I can have my whole life story that I've already planned out and do it with Jesus. But I didn't just want Jesus light. I didn't want just a little bit of Jesus. I wanted all of Jesus. I wanted a lot of Jesus. And so as I continued to pursue him, God started to change my plans. And he never changed my plans and like the, oh, you wanted to do this hard thing. Let me go give you this really fun thing instead or this really easy thing instead. Always, God called me to a humbler vision for my life than I had for, for myself. I wanted to go be a tech CEO and build some big company. And instead, God called me to be a shepherd. I wanted to go to a fancy school, get a fancy degree, and instead, God asked me to drop out of school and go work so I could support a family. I wanted to be anywhere but 
Bakersfield, anywhere but Bakersfield. Come on, anywhere but Bakersfield. But where am I? God led me back. God led me back to my hometown, uh, back to Bakersfield. And the crazy thing, the crazy thing about all of this is I'm happier and freer than I could have ever imagined, than I could have ever hoped for if I had pursued my own ambitions, pursued my own calling. Because I'm, instead of living according to my vision for my life, instead I'm living according to God's vision for my life. It's like I'm, I'm destined to be a hammer, and then when we're over here trying to be a hacksaw and not doing a very good job of cutting anything because I'm just a, a hammer. And um, when we finally live out our calling, well, it's really satisfying for a hammer to pound in nails, it turns out. And so you and I, we have a story that's already been written for us. From the beginning, God knew you. Before time even began, God had already written your story sovereignly, beautifully, with good plans, a good finale, a good ending. And when we try to live apart from that story, fundamentally we can't actually, but when we live in a way that doesn't, that conflicts with God's desire for our lives, it's like we're trying to be the wrong tool. We're trying to be a, a violin when we should be a trombone or a, a, you know, using an electric guitar like a bass drum doesn't work very well. We have to use our lives for what God designed them for, for God's intended purpose for us. And when we do, we'll find that we actually are happiest when we forget ourselves. We're happiest in self-forgetfulness. The, the best moments of my life, and I, I, I'll, I'll confess that they're much more rare than I would like to admit, but the best moments of my life are when I have so lost myself in worship or prayer that I, I almost forget I even exist because I'm beholding and considering the glory of Jesus before my face. Those are the, the most ecstatic, exultant moments that I, I can ever recall. And we were actually designed to live our whole lives like that in this blissful self-forgetfulness where we're so in love with God and so in love with those around us that he's called us to serve that a thought for ourselves never need cross our mind because God's taking care of us so I can be God's love for these other people. God's taking care of me so I can pursue him. Now, this can, feel like, this can feel like bad news because I'm an ambitious guy and it's always, it always sounds so hard, so painful when God asks me to give up something I want, right? How many of you have ever been asked by God to give up something you really want? How many of you have ever been asked to give up something you thought was your, your dream, your life's ambition? It, it, can, it can be painful. It's like, it's like Abraham laying his son Isaac down on the altar. He has no... Um, no right to believe that God will um, save his son by offering a separate animal. He was faithful that God would even raise him up from the dead, but he might have had to plunge that knife into his son's heart. God was merciful to Abraham. You and I so often, we have to lay our dreams down on this altar and it's, it's painful, it's hard. It can break our hearts. Sometimes God takes our dreams away from us we were, we were planning to have a children, but we experience a miscarriage. We were planning to live a life with our spouse, but they, they pass on before their time. Sometimes we experience pain and suffering that we could have never imagined. 
And we question, what's the point of all of this? Why am I even here? What am I even doing? John, John knew those feelings. John knew those experiences. It, but what he recognized is that if anything is worth living for, if anything is worth having my life point towards, if anything is worth giving glory to, it's the light. It's the light of the world. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, is the only thing in all of creation, in all of this world, that could ever be worthy of you pouring yourself out for and emptying yourself for its glory. Nothing is more worthy of my life pointing to than the light. And, and in a sense, we get that, right? Because, well, we don't want, I don't want my life to point to the darkness. And really, when I consider my own life, man, I don't want y'all to follow me. I don't want people to, to look at me and say, oh, Nathan is so great. Isn't he such a good guy? Isn't he so nice and friendly? Because I am, like, I'm toxic. Like, left to my own devices, I'm not just foolish. I'm evil. And there's, there's a really terrifying reality that when we recognize our own brokenness and consider how much time we spent trying to convince other people to believe us and follow us and look like us, like this, this influencer culture is scary. It's scary because everyone who's trying to influence you has nothing to offer you, no life, no hope. And all of their influence is just remaking you in their image. And their image is not a worthy image to reflect. But Jesus, he is worthy. Jesus is the light. Revelation, it talks about us not even needing a sun in the sky because of the glory of the radiance of the presence of Jesus in that city. If God's power, creativity, wisdom, character, righteousness is the, the energy of the sun, then Jesus is the shining out of that sun, the light that we see and touch and feel. His glory is shown not just in um, how he upholds the world, how he created it, but it's shown in the life that he lived here on earth, right? Hebrews actually says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when you and I, we want to learn what God is like, we're actually supposed to look to Jesus, and we're not supposed to just imagine Jesus is like, I'm, I'm a theological guy and I can, I can get trapped in this where when I think about the goodness of Jesus, I start thinking about his attributes. Like, oh, he's, you know, all powerful or all knowing or sovereign or, yeah, you know, yada, yada. Like what's the epistemological nature of this guy? When instead I'm supposed to turn to the gospels and say, well, I serve a God who sits with little children and invites them onto his knee and reads them stories. I serve a God who, when he encounters a leper, instead of healing him from a distance or forgetting him altogether, reaches out his hand and touches him and cleanses him. I serve a God who calms storms and walks on water. I serve a God who deals with really, really, really obnoxious disciples for a really long time. So there's good news for you and me. I serve a God whose glory has been revealed in Jesus Christ. God, his, his goodness is revealed in Jesus. His mercy is revealed in Jesus. His love is revealed in Jesus. His righteousness is revealed in Jesus. So if anyone was worthy of John decreasing for, becoming less for, it was Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's worthy of our lives being poured out as a witness for.
And so there's, there's good news here because it can be so hard to make the story not about ourselves. We've been so trained and conditioned to make the story about ourselves. We're the, we're, we write ourselves in as the main character for every Old Testament story. I'm David, I'm Moses, I'm you know, this person and this person. How am I gonna slay my giant? How am I gonna uh, lead these people? How am I gonna build this wall? There's, there's all of these stories we try to write ourselves into. But at the end of the day, we're not the main character. Who is? Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the one who we point to, but he is so worthy for us to point to him. And this is actually more important than we realize because God, he didn't create you and me as objects that reveal his righteousness. You know that the angels are looking down on church today and they're not looking down kind of like, oh, embarrassed or like uh, worried. Oh, it's gonna, like, it's gonna go off course. They're gonna mess it up. They're gonna screw it up. The angels aren't looking down and saying, oh, well, Brad, he, he didn't wear deodorant today. Or, uh, you know, Stacy's got that secret sin that she's hiding. No, they're looking down in wonder. They're looking down in wonder because you and I, we weren't created to reveal God's righteousness. We weren't created to show how good God is, how righteous God is. We were revealed, we were created to reveal God's grace. You and I are objects of grace. There's a reason why God didn't snap his fingers and make you perfect the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Wouldn't that have been nice? But he didn't snap his fingers and make you perfect because your glorious purpose is to show just how patient, just how merciful, just how kind and gentle, just how lowly and humble our Savior is, that he came to people like us, he's redeeming people like us, he's patient with people like us, and even where our sin increases, even when we get worse, even when we come into the light and find that we're messier and more sinful and more wicked than we ever imagined we could be, God's grace is more when you and I find ourselves there. When you and I find ourselves in the light and realize that all we're doing to the light is bringing darkness into it, God's grace is more. His light overwhelms your darkness. His light overcomes your darkness. And so you and I, we reveal God's grace to the angels. We reveal just how kind and patient he is to the angels and to all of the watching world that he takes broken, screwed up. I won't say stupid, but you know, sometimes we can be <laughs> and, and he redeems them and he brings them together and creates a new people out of them. It's good news. And at the end of the day, it's the only judgment that's going to matter. John 3, 16 through 21 says this. Y'all have probably heard John 3, 16 before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to read that again. I know you've heard it a million times, but for God so loved you, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has con is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is where the light part comes in. 
And this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, we have these standards for how we judge our own performance, how much God ought to love me today. I look at, well, did I pray? Did I read my Bible? Am I being a good husband today? Am I being a good father today? Did I do a good job at work today? I have all of these, these check boxes that, um, how I measure my performance, how I measure how worthy I am of, of love today. And it's, it sounds silly, but it's so easy for us to slip into that. We have even worse standards for how we judge other people. Like, did they cut me off in traffic today? Straight to hell, straight to hell. There's uh, really awful standards of judgment that we use for other people oftentimes, where we'll basically write off entire groups of people as unredeemable or unworthy. But the good news is that all of those standards of judgment, they, they don't matter anymore. Those standards of judgment don't apply anymore because the light has come into the world. And when the light has come into the world, when the pure representation of all that is good and worthy and holy and beautiful has come into the world, then the only question that matters is whether you and I love that light. If we love the light, then all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our guilt, it pales in comparison to the goodness, to the, the, the glory of that light. And if I live the most moral, righteous life of any man ever, who ever lived on earth, but I hate the light, then all of those supposedly good things that I think I've done, they're, they're worthless. They're nothing but filthy rags because I've rejected that which was most beautiful. I've rejected that which was most precious, that which was most glorious. And so this is, this is God's grace to us that your righteousness, it's, it's worthless. I, I, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Your righteousness is worthless. But in the face of Jesus's light, so is your sin. So is your unworthiness. So is your brokenness. It has no power. It has no place because if you love the light and come to the light, that is the only judgment that God will ever apply to you. And so Daniel, he talked yesterday about how... Um, we like to stay in the darkness. And even when we begin to follow Jesus, we, we like to kind of sit in the shadows. We like to have one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light, just enough light that I can see where I'm going, but not enough light where I can see all the cockroaches on the floor and remember that I haven't swept or vacuumed in a month and a half. Like we, we like the hotel room lighting and not the, not the hospital lighting, right? Like uh, because we don't want to see all of that. We don't want to see our brokenness. We don't want to admit that I can't do it on my own. We want to pretend. We want to play games. We want to um, fake it till we make it, but we never actually get to the point where we make the commitment to walk in the light. But the good news for you, brother, the good news for you, sister, is that your sin doesn't scare God and the cockroaches don't scare Jesus because 
we fail to understand just how bright his light is, that it can't just, it doesn't just show us the dark corners in our life. It doesn't just show us the brokenness, but one day it's going to do away with them completely. On that last day when Jesus um, returns, when the trumpets sound, Jesus's light will illuminate your life and illuminate my life to such an extent that all of the brokenness has no place anymore, that all of the sin and wicked desires have no place in our heart anymore, that those secret sins, those burdens that we carry with us have no place in our life anymore, and we will be filled and illuminated by the light of Jesus's life. And so today, the only thing that's keeping you from walking in the light is your own will. It's your own choice. It's your own fear. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to have to suffer in the dark anymore. I don't want you to have to suffer in the twilight anymore. We were creatures of the day. We're creatures of the light. And so my heart for you today is if you're walking in the darkness, come to the light, come find life in Jesus Christ. Yes, it's going to be ugly. Like you are going to find out things about yourself that you never wanted to know. But when you see the problems, Jesus can start to work on those problems with you, for you, on your behalf. If you're still living in the twilight, if you're still trying to forget the fact that you haven't swept in a while, if your life still looks a lot different than the truth you proclaim, there's grace for you. That's That's the good news, right? There's grace for us, but we're missing out on the treasure, the joy, the beauty of having our lives more fully lit, more fully illuminated by the goodness of Jesus. See, you and I can accomplish things we never could have imagined, never could have dreamed when we do it, walking alongside Jesus. When we're near to Jesus's hand, he will lead you places you never wanted to go, but he will empower you to accomplish things you never could have dreamed of. He'll make you a man or a woman that you never wanted to be, but were always created to be destined to be in your goodness and your patience and your mercy. And then finally, if, if, we, if, you've, if you've tasted it, if you've seen it, if you know what it feels like to walk in the light, if you know how good it is to, to take your sins, to take your brokenness, and instead of hiding them, bring them to Jesus and lay them at his feet and say, Lord, forgive me, make me new. Cleanse me, illuminate me, shine your light in my heart so that I can see the broken places. Shine your light in my heart so I can see your goodness. If you know what that feels like, how can we do anything but invite others to come and see as well? How can we do anything but invite others to come and live in the light as well? Your, your life should be a witness, just like John's, should be a witness to the goodness of Jesus. That includes sharing the gospel with your words. Please share the gospel with your brothers, your friends, your neighbors. I dedicated my baby today in first service, and that was my excuse to invite my brother and his girlfriend, who are, who are not believers, to church with me. And I did not actually tell them that I was preaching today. So that was my, uh, uh, my uh, evangelism tactic, is not tell them I'm preaching, because otherwise they won't show up. But... Um, sharing the gospel with our words, but also uh, our, our lives should be a testament to the glory of Jesus Christ in your work, in your play, in how you treat your family and love your kids, in how you treat that really annoying person who's sitting next to you in the pew. Not talking about your spouse, the, the other person, the other person. Um, in how we do all of these things, we either point to the goodness 
of a savior who loves us or we point to ourselves. We point to ourselves and you and I know I have no life to offer you. You have no life to offer anyone. But when you let your life be a signal pointing to the light of Jesus Christ, God will produce through you miracles all around you. So let our lives be a testament, a witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ. So as we close, I'm going to to pray for us. If you feel like you're far from God, if you're still in the dark, come and step into the light. We can help you do that. You don't have to fight it alone. Um, I led a brother to the Lord here in church uh, probably six, eight months back. And he comes over to my house every Tuesday night and we do dinner and discipleship. If you feel like you're still in the dark, we have people who are ready to walk with you. I will walk with you. Somebody will walk with you. You don't have to do this alone. Come into the light. If you're still living in the twilight, now's the time to take another step. Now's the time to let a little bit more of that light in. And let's do a a better job of, of letting our lives be a reflection of the light, of the goodness, of the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that You've shown us what goodness is. You've shown us what love is. You've shown us what mercy is. And it's all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that your love wasn't just the love that welcomes little children onto your knee, but the love that dies for sinners. The love that stretches out his hands and takes nails, takes beatings, and ultimately takes the wrath of God poured out to reveal your love and to pay the penalty for our sins. God, as we close, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people to help us take another step into the light, to repent, to um, love you better, to, to seek the character of Jesus in the pages of scripture. I pray that those who are far from you would come, that they would come and lay their burdens down, not at the feet of a, a wrathful judge, but a loving lowly, gentle shepherd who will care for them and love them. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, God, we pray that you would come quickly, come soon, make us new, make this world a reflection of your glory so that we don't have to just show people what you're like through our lives, but that they can see you face to face. Um, We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.